my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. They come back and their eyes are kind of wide. We put in the tape cassette and they say, you're not going to believe this. And there is Richard Nixon standing in his office next to the American flag with a flag in his lapel. And in that Nixonian way, he says, I've always believed that Tom Brokaw was a man of very good judgment, very good judgment. Never showed better judgment than when he turned down my offer to be my press secretary. <laughs> I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. We explore the analytical and creative side of marketing from marketers to founders to media types. And today we have one of America's best-known observers of all trends of the last 50 years, Tom Brokaw. I met Tom in the late 70s. I was a radio programmer. Tom was the host of the Today Show. He was the coolest, hippest guy I knew. And I benefited from his insights ever since, including this fabulous perch when he was the anchor of the nightly news on NBC. Great to have you with us today, Tom. Great to be here. I love the whole concept of the reinvention of radio in which you're in the thick of it. And the podcast phenomenon is really something that is I didn't see coming. When I was on my way over here, my secretary said, I only listen to podcasts anymore. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? We're going to get into some stories, but first I want to do you in 60 seconds. This is going to be lightning round style. It's quick, easy. Give us the first thing that comes to your mind. Do you prefer dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. I, we've had both, but I'm, I'm owned by dogs. We've got two labs and you know, they're there at 630 in the morning, putting their nose in my face and saying, come on, buddy, it's time to go out. And there I am. I'm hostage. Okay, Beatles or Rolling Stones? The Stones. I have a great story about them, and I've actually talked to Mick about this. I was working in Omaha, and it must have been 1964. I was going to work on a Saturday morning, and uh, Omaha is a big spread out Midwestern city, and there was a limousine, a big stretch. We don't see those. At 10 o'clock in the morning, we were at a four-way stop, and four very shaggy heads stuck their heads out of this limousine. Thought, oh, my God, who are those guys? And then I realized that 
They were the Rolling Stones. They had a big concert that night in Omaha. And I later said to Mick, I was working in Omaha in 1964. He said, oh, yeah, we played it was a barn. And I said, it really was a barn. Okay, let's go to movies. Network or Anchorman? Network is a very important broadcast. They did a lot of the research at our place, which would make NBC happy when they saw it on the screen. But I do think that Network is an important film. Okay, so wine or tequila? <laughs> I'm talking to a tequila man. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> the fact is, I like your tequila. I like it neat. I'm, I'm at an age and a stage in life when I, I want to have something neat and cold and not a lot of it, frankly. Okay, so we're going to pick places. Montana, New York, or Florida? That's impossible. I mean, they all have different appeals to me. I couldn't live anywhere else except New York. So let's go to the beginning, out west. I did a motorcycle trip across America with a group of bikers in 1992. I told you about it, and you said, oh, you've got to stop. Only one suggestion, Yankton, South Dakota. Clearly, your hometown was very important to you, and you talk a lot about your early family life there. Can you give us just like a second on it and then tell us what lessons you took away from that that you've used your whole life? Although towns of that size, it was about 9,000 at that point. But they had everything. They had two colleges. They had a very, very good public high school and a public school system because they made a huge investment in it. And you were raised not just by your family, but you were raised by the community. And there was enormous community pride if you did something. When I was a junior in high school, for example, I was invited to be on a television quiz show here in New York. There wasn't a television set in Yankton that was not tuned to two for the money that night because Tom Brokaw was on. Did you win? Well, yeah, we won 650 bucks. Which wow. is, that was a, That's a lot. A chunk on. of change. You came to New York. What else had you seen in the bigger world, or was the world really South Dakota for you growing up? I always was looking over the horizon. I knew there was life out there that I wanted to be a part of. Radio, for me, was my connection to the wider world. I thought, maybe I could do something like that. And you actually were on the radio. I was. I was 15 years old. I moved to this town. Why they'd hired me right away, I don't know. I guess I had a reputation for being a Gabby kid. But I moved to Yankton in the summer of 1955. By the fall of 1955, I was playing football and basketball. And at 7 o'clock at night, I was doing a teenage rock and roll show. And those were the great days. You know, I was a big fan of early rock and roll. Elvis and uh, Jerry Louie and everybody. It was a 250-watt station. Got maybe to the end of Main Street. But for me, it was a very big deal. And you went off the air at what time? Went off the air at midnight, but I didn't stay until midnight. I was on from 7 until 8, and then in the summertime, they hired me as a vacation replacement. So it was a great deal. All my other friends were out there breaking their backs and working on highway construction projects. I was sitting in an air-conditioned studio playing songs for girls that I wanted to meet. You know? <laughs> so you met Meredith, your wife there. I met Meredith, yeah. Tell us the story. She was this brightest young woman in town and absolutely drop-dead beautiful from the first family of Yankton. Her dad was a doctor and her mother built a school library. And she was very, very disciplined, which is part of the reason that we still is. And still is. And so we were great pals, but we didn't ever date uh, in high school. She was a cheerleader and I was playing basketball. We were going to the state basketball tournament and she gave me... Uh, a Christmas gift, which was a sailor's cap because I had a girl in every port. She had me figured out early on. I went through a real kind of off-the-cliff kind of time. I dropped out of two colleges. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And Meredith wrote me the harshest letter I've ever received, saying, if you don't get your act together, I never want to talk to you again. We weren't even dating at that point. You're disappointing your parents. The rest of us can't figure out what you're up to. It was a big wake-up call. So I kind of got my act together, and she came to me and said, yeah, maybe I went too far. I said, no, I had it coming. And a year later, to the surprise of everyone in South Dakota, we got married 56 years ago. Wow. That's a pretty good story. Yeah. You went through college and you got into TV. How did that happen? I was working in a television station in Sioux City, Iowa, when I was still a junior in college. and I could commute there. I made 75 bucks a week. Worked six days a week. I was a booth announcer and did the weekend weather and whatever else. Tell people what a booth announcer is. You know, you had live announcers. 10 p.m., KTIV, Channel 4, Sioux City. Next up, Dave Schumacher and the 10 o'clock news. When I did the weather, the news block led with the weather. It was the most important thing in the Midwest. And the weather was brought to you by DeCab Corn. And so I would do the weather, and then I'd take a break, and I would reach down, and I'd pull out an ear of corn out of the set and say, 
Notice these even yellow kernels. This is a decab corn product. You don't see that in other corn. <laughs> I had no idea what I was talking about. There will be an occluded front. There will be a low pressure system. What the hell does that mean? I, mean, I didn't have any idea. You go through your career there. You wind up in Omaha. How do you make the jump? A friend of mine was working in uh, Sioux City, and he had come out of Northwestern. He was obviously destined for bigger things. He ended up at CBS. David Schumacher was his name. And he said, you're getting married. You got a job? And I said, no, I, I thought I had one. But he said, I think there's an opening in Omaha. Let me call him. So I went down to Omaha, and I arrived out of nowhere. And it was a very serious news station, and the news director took me out to lunch. And we started talking politics. And at the end of lunch, he said, I've never had anybody work for me who knows as much about politics as you do. We could use you. I'll pay you $90 a week. And I said, I have to have 100 He said, you begged for this job. Now you want a $10 raise. I said, I'm marrying the daughter of a doctor. I have to be able to say I have a three-figure salary. And he said, you'll never get a raise, but I'll start you at 100 And he, he kept his promise. I didn't get a raise. How many years were you there? I was there two and a half, and I thought I would never get out. I was working six days a week. Signing on the station at six in the morning, working till one o'clock in the afternoon. Meredith was teaching school and making more money than I was. And one night out of nowhere, I got a call from the premier NBC affiliate in America at the time, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a Cox broadcasting station. It was in the middle of the civil rights movement. It was a big distinguished station in the heart of the South. I said, who is this? It was the station manager. And I said, how'd you hear about me? He said, I have friends in the Midwest. I asked them to look around, and a lot of them talked to me about you. Can you come down and we'll take a look? I was 25 years old, and I said, if I fly out of here and my station manager, he'll fire me. I have to sneak out on the weekend, which I did. And I got off the plane in an early spring day in Atlanta. I left a snowstorm behind in Omaha, and the magnolias were in bloom, and the station was in a antebellum mansion sitting on the end of Peachtree Street. And I thought, if I don't get this job, I'm going to kill myself. And by the end of the weekend, they said, we'd like you to be our 11 o'clock news anchor. I couldn't believe it. I went back to Omaha, pulled a trailer full of stuff down to Omaha and went to work right away. And More, I, more than $100 a week? I mean, more than $100 a week. They tripled my salary. And that was a big deal. At night at 1130, I was often called by the NBC news desk. Can you get to Selma? Can you get to Montgomery? Can you get to Americas? There was all hell breaking loose. And so I would jump on a charter and run down to those places until they could get their NBC correspondence there. And I was on the Today Show. I was doing a lot of radio. And I was having the time of my life. Dander got killed a couple of times. The sheriff pointed a shotgun at me. He said, if you don't get out of town, I got a hair trigger here. And then I was grabbed by a bunch of guys who wanted to put me in the trunk of a car and drive me away, and somebody intervened. Anyhow, six months later, after I got there, NBC came and said, we want you to come to work for us. Take you to California, and we'll triple the salary you're getting here, which had just been tripled. It was unbelievable. And the station manager in Atlanta, he had a big relationship with NBC, and he said, we just got this guy. And they said, you're not going to be able to hang on to him. And he came to me, and he said, they're right. Take the opportunity and go with our blessing. Meredith was pregnant. We waited until the baby was born. We moved to California, and uh, I got there ahead of her in 1966 in the spring. And the uh, genius at the news desk said, we hear you know a lot about politics, so there's this actor running for governor. We don't think he's going anywhere. Get on the bus with Ronald Reagan. So that was my first introduction to California politics. I was on the bus with Ronald Reagan, riding around with him. Were you a reporter? I was a reporter. I, I did the Sunday night news, and I filled in as an anchor. You know, when somebody was off, I would do that. Sometimes I would arrive at the station at 7.30 in the morning and they'd hand me a plane ticket and I'd jump on a plane and fly to Berkeley, California and cover the riots in Berkeley, get on the four o'clock plane and fly back again. And then because I did have this reputation for politics, I would brief David Brinkley when he would come out to do a story about California politics or Sandy Van Oker or other people. So tell us a little bit about that period. The country is going through upheaval. You had both the sort of glitzy go-go 60s, but you also had this other almost revolution going on. It was a cultural revolution, but people forget how much violence there was as well. We had Watts blow up at that time. And in Northern California, Berkeley was 24-7 a riot. It was not a university anymore. Reagan became governor. He had a reputation as a law and order guy, but he had to do some things to get control of the institutions, which he did quite well, frankly. He was the governor, but he also had Buff Chandler, who published the Los Angeles Times, Ed Pauley from Pauley Hale, a big oil company, uh, Norton Simon, the great art collector and industrialist. They were on the Board of Regents. 
So I was exposed at that point to this great group of people and saw how they acted in the best interest of the state. And one of the uh, regents was the president of the UCLA Alumni Association, Bob Haldeman. And the first time I ever met him was at a regents meeting. And he was actually a wholly different person than he became. He kind of had a good sense of humor. If I had questions about the Republican Party, I could pick up the phone and call him and he'd give me the straight answer. Then he went off to work for Nixon, and he was a different character. He had really had become the tough cop. He had no sense of humor about anything. And then he tried to hire him to be press secretary and work for Nixon. What year was that? <laughs> that was 1968. They were just in office. It wasn't working out with Ron. I would have been killed in Washington. I got to know the Washington crowd. Yeah, they were tough. And this kid coming in from California, I was 28. If you think they were tough on Ziegler, they would have been twice as tough on me, frankly. And I knew better. And I said, no. And I swore him to secrecy. I said, no one can know about this, Bob. I want to be an NBC News correspondent. I want to go to Washington, but on my terms. And he honored that. Now I turned 50 and they send camera crews around. This is later, obviously. And they come back and their eyes are kind of wide. We put in the tape cassette and they say, you're not going to believe this. And there's Richard Nixon standing in his office next to the American flag with a flag in his lapel. And that Nixonian way, he says, I've always believed that Tom Brokaw was a man of very good judgment, very good judgment. Never showed better judgment than when he turned down my offer to be my press secretary. Oh, he remembered. Oh, yeah, he remembered. Yeah. So you arrive in Washington. Summer of 73. Watergate was underway at that point. And I didn't quite know what I was in for. I had to pedal very hard. I was keeping up. But at the same time, there was still the skepticism about who's this guy from California? What does he know? And I was helped by guys like Bob Novak, the old newspaper guy, because he would come out. And I would brief him on California politics. And Johnny Apple from The New York Times would say, oh, wait a minute. This guy knows what he's doing. So I was taken in, frankly, by some of the elders. And I once said to Al Haig, he said, how are you doing? I said, it's like skiing in an avalanche. <laughs> I just, you know, just keeping going all day long because something was happening every day. In the fall of 1973, Nixon was under siege. They wanted the tapes. A special prosecutor was after him. And Syria and Egypt invaded Israel. And Israel was not prepared. And they were about to go down. And they called out SOS to Nixon. And Nixon called the Pentagon and said, send every goddamn thing we've got to Israel and saved Israel. It was a stimulating time. We went to Russia, went to the Middle East. He was all over the country proving that he was still the president of the United States. My feet really didn't touch the ground. for. And, and you traveled with him yeah. on these. Yeah. And had you seen the world before then? I had. I'd been in Europe a couple of times, but I really didn't see it as much as I was then beginning to see it. One of my favorite moments was uh, Pompidou died and we were in Paris and I was the pool reporter. So I was at Notre Dame. And we had bad seats, and I saw a young priest, and I went over to him, and I said, you speak English? He said, yes, I know who you are, Mr. Broker. I said, I want to be up there. And I pointed to the ceiling. He said, there's a back staircase. We may run into Quasimodo, but he said, we'll go. <laughs> we walked all the way up there, and I stood on a very narrow pathway at the top of Notre Dame, looking down on this gathering of everybody in the world coming in for Pompidou's funeral in hut. This is better than being in high school in Yankton. Talk about Watergate and this period, what impact it had on journalism. All the president's men, big book, sort of opened yeah. people's eyes to what was going on. What was the sea change? Washington journalism was reinvented by Bob and Carl, frankly. You know, what they did was treat this like a cop show. We're going to go find out what happened. The Washington press establishment was pretty much the establishment. They were buddy-buddy with everybody that they knew in the White House and they knew in Congress. And a few things would break through. But Bob and Carl were two rookies who went out and covered Watergate from the ground up. Were they really rookies? Oh, yeah, they were really rookies. Bob had been covering the cop beat in Montgomery County. They had parked him way out in Montgomery County, but he was available the day that they were charging the burglars that they'd caught. And he grabbed a notebook in a little tiny apartment that he had out in Montgomery County. And he ran down to the courthouse in Washington. And the first thing he saw was some very well-groomed lawyer who was defending these guys. And he thought, what's that all about? Who is this guy? Carl was a renegade kid who was a great writer and a stylist. And they work through the night. They go on, knock on doors. And so what's the lasting legacy on journalism in general that comes from that era? I think in many ways it made everybody a detective. They could be a 19-year-old starting reporter and they'd say, hmm, bake sale, huh? Who paid for those cookies? <laughs> who supplied you with that? Everything was suspect. It wouldn't take anything for granted. 
And now we've got a great generation of very, very good journalists. They've grown up wanting to be working journalists. The other legacy of Watergate is that there's always a scandal waiting to be uncovered in the nation's capital because the stakes are so big. There's an enormous concentration of power there, and somebody wants to take advantage of that in every administration. There hasn't been an administration since I've been covering Washington that hasn't had a scandal of one degree or another. We talk about today, many people worried about the world and where we're going. You sort of forget that moment we were worried that we were going to have a nuclear war, we were going to war with Russia, politics of oil. Give us a little view of what that felt like then and what the view of the future was from that vantage point at that moment. Well, there was more structure to the international political system in those days. The Russians and the United States had a kind of bifurcated relationship. Russia took care of the East, we took care of the West. They had serious talks about nuclear. Obviously, Vietnam was a huge, huge part of what was going on. The war makers in Washington, D.C. completely miscalculated the meaning of what Vietnam was. And that was the rise at that point of Southeast Asia and the rise really of the place of China. Nixon understood that. He wanted to go to China. It was his idea. To his credit, he got there and he opened relations with China. That was a profound move, frankly, because we then cut out the Russians. We could triangulate. That was critically important. And the Chinese understood the opportunity that he brought to them. And Kissinger was a great facilitator of that as well. And then the world began to change. And now it's jump ball. I'm going to West Point tomorrow to talk about this to the new class of cadets. They're going to enter a world in which all the lessons of the past are up for grabs because we don't have a relationship anymore with Western Europe as we once did. The alliance is coming apart and is being driven apart by the President Trump, but also Western Europe is not prepared to do what it once did. Poland used to be a great ally after the war with us, and now they're having their own internal feuds. Same thing is going on in Austria. China is a huge threat commercially, economically, culturally to this country. And then you have the other players, the renegades like North Korea. What's going to happen there? And the rise of these other powers that are not part of a larger complex, if you will. They're on their own. One of my oldest friends is one of the leading authorities in the world on nuclear power. He's a Soviet expert. And he said, I've never been more frightened about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. He said, it's too easy to get them anymore. And people have gotten them. So worried more about it today than back then. Yeah. Because then there was a system for dealing with it. The Russians had them and we had them. And we kept track of who else was trying to get them. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. 
the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Tom Brokaw. So you've moved from Washington, you go to the Today Show for a while, and then you jump to nightly news. Probably at that time, the greatest perch to see what's going on in the world. You've always had great personal observations. When I would see you, I would say, okay, Tom, what really went on? And you told me the story of talking to Gorbachev and Castro comes up. Can you tell us the story? Well, Gorbachev and I had this relationship because I did the first and only interview with him at that point that any Westerner had ever done. He thought I was the only American that counted. So he came down to Cuba to tell Castro, it's over. We're shutting off the spigot. You're not getting help from us anymore. We got our own problems. So Castro was through this huge reception. Castro was leading him around the room. I could see that Gorbachev was saying, what the hell have I gotten myself into here? And so when Gorbachev sees me, he's relieved. He comes running over to me with his uh, interpreter, and we start this animated conversation. And all of a sudden, Castro realizes that he's lost the guest, and he comes running over, and he starts talking in staccato Spanish, and the interpreter's keeping up, and he's saying, Gorbachev, Gorbachev, don't pay any attention to Brokaw, and Dan Rather's coming in here, don't pay any attention to these guys. They come down, and they interview us, and they interview us for two hours, and they go back to New York, and they play it for 20 seconds, and they make millions of dollars. We get nothing from all of this. Gorbachev is looking at me and rolling his eyes and rolling his eyes, and but it was a turning moment, because... The Russians turned off the spigot, and the Cubans had to deal with it on their own. So he rolled his eyes, probably one of the most telling things about what was going on there. But you really weren't able to talk about it on TV. Today, you yeah, that would be the lead. I know. So what happened then and today in terms of how people cover story? What happened? What happened is a proliferation of outlets. I mean, what happened is that everything is 24-7 now, so you've got to fill it up with material. There's too much repetition, not enough original reporting, and it's just repeating, repeating, repeating. And then you have the ideology of two networks, Fox and MSNBC, going on. But it's mostly just filling things up and not taking time to be thoughtful. It's tough for me to watch it sometimes, and I think they get tired of hearing me, but I have to say to them, come on, guys. If I'm living in Des Moines and I'm looking at you for my news, and I leave the house at 8 o'clock in the morning and I hear what you were reporting and I come home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 5, and I'm hearing the same thing again, 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 give me something fresh. Take me somewhere where I haven't been in the last nine hours. And by the way, the world exists beyond the Hudson River and beyond the Beltway. It's an interesting country out there. Go cover that. Let's keep going on history. The Berlin Wall. I think you were the only... News anchor to be yeah, there. It was a great so moment. So did you see it coming, and were you prepared for it? How did you wind up there? Well, what happened is that we had a very good guy by the name of Jerry Lamprecht, who was our foreign editor, and he came to me and he said, you know, there's not much going on here, and it's beginning to percolate in Berlin. Why don't you think about going over there? we got nothing to lose. I checked the airplanes. You can go tomorrow. So the next morning, I was able to go into East Germany pretty easily for the first time. 
They didn't stop me at Checkpoint Charlie. They just said, okay, and I had to have an escort with me. In East Germany, it was a completely different climate than it had been in the past. People were wandering around trying to figure out what was going on, and there was this enormous line at the gate taking them to Czechoslovakia. And so I said, we don't have to be on the air live tonight. I'll just do some reporting from here, but keep the satellite for tomorrow night. Next day, same thing. At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a press conference. Mr. Schabowski, who was their information chief, who was their propagandist, had this meeting. And the East German journalist by then had been emboldened, and they were challenging him on everything. But he was holding them off and everything. And then somebody came in, gave him a slip of paper, and he says, oh, the Politburo has decided citizens of the GER can exit and reenter through all of the portals on the wall. What? I had a camera crew that had grown up in Germany, and they looked at me and said, my God, the wall is down. That's what he's saying. The wall is down. Everybody was hammering their head, and he gets up and leaves. And I had a prearranged appointment with him up in his office. So I ran up there, and I said, Mr. Schabowski, read that again on my camera. And he did. And I said, that means that East German citizens can leave and come back. That means the wall is open. Nah, that's what it means. And I said, you've spent your life as a communist. Is this the end of it? No, he said, we will retain control. So I went downstairs with a bunch of uh, newspaper men, and I said, it's over. He just confirmed that the wall is going to be opened. And I ran back to the office, and I said, get the satellite, make sure it's up. We'll do it at Brandenburg Gate. It's now about 5 o'clock, and it's uh, you know noon here. And it was chaos. We go to the Brandenburg Gate at about 11 o'clock that night, and Brandenburg Gate is a great division between East Germany and West Germany, and it looks out on the East German side. And there were a lot of students from West Germany who had come and stood atop the wall at the Brandenburg Gate shouting at the East German kids, come with us. And the East German kids didn't know whether they'd be shot or not, so they were reluctant to do it. And then the guards got the hoses out, and they tried to drive them off. That didn't work. In the middle of all this, a guy who had been on the wall with a leather jacket on, I always remember what he looked like, he was holding up his hands, his back to the East German guards who were hosing him, and he wouldn't be moved, and he was laughing. So I said to Martin Fletcher, who was our correspondent from the Middle East who had come up to help out, I said, go over and get that guy. He's a, the image of the new Germany, and he'll be on the cover of Time magazine next week. We're going to interview him. And Martin comes back, doubled over in laughter. And I said, where is he? He said, well, it's not what we saw. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, he's a drunk. He's been living over in the woods. He has no idea what's going on. This is the first shower he's had in two weeks. <laughs> and then, obviously, I remember this well. At 625, we got the first footage of one of the gates being open. And we put that on the air and came on the air that night. I had lived 30 minutes of nightly news. A historic moment. How do you deal with sudden and unexpected disasters. The Space Shuttle Challenger comes to mind. We always knew there was a chance that something would happen with the shuttle, but we were kind of prepared for that. The worst one, Bob, was 9-11. That was wholly unanticipated. I was at home when I got a call that morning of 9-11, and they said, a small plane has hit the World Trade Center. Maybe you ought to come in. I said, okay. So I dashed out onto Park Avenue, and I heard sirens. They were going screaming across the city. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if they're going down there. In the cab, I turned on the car radio. Art Athens is a very good radio reporter in this town. And he said, an airliner at high speed and low altitude just flew over Washington Square Park and into one of the towers. Oh, my God, it's not an accident. So I called Meredith in Montana, woke her up, and I said, I don't want to talk again, but you better start watching television. Went right down to the studio, and Katie and Matt were on the air, and Tim was in Washington. And we started sharing information, and everybody was in very good form. And Jim Mikloszewski, who's our Pentagon correspondent, they said, Mikloszewski needs the air right now. So I said, Jim Mikloszewski at the Pentagon, he said, we just had an enormous shuddering of the Pentagon and a huge sound on the other side. We think maybe the Pentagon has been hit. And in fact, it was. We had a camera fixed on the Twin Trade Towers. We saw people jumping. I don't even want to repeat it now. I'll never forget a woman who jumped out. It was hopeless for them. And so we quickly shut that down. I don't think it was on more than three or four minutes until people could react and say, stop, we're not going to show that. And then I said, because I'd grown up around construction, there's so much damage to these towers, they're going to have to bring them down. And about three minutes later, first tower starts to collapse. 
and then the second tower, and no one was taking a breath at that point. I had looked into the camera, and I said, this will change us. We're at war. This is an unprovoked attack on the United States, the worst attack on the United States since 1812. This is an attack on us and probably came from the Middle East. And we have to, from this moment on, think differently about who we are and what we're going to do. And I guess I was the first one to say that kind of thing on the air. And some wonky guy who was a political science major wrote and said, you don't have the authority to declare war. I wasn't declaring war. I was, I was a journalist trying to be realistic. So the follow-up to that is you got an anthrax attack. Hardest thing I've been through in my working days there. Uh, we were getting these hate letters. You guys are playing it all on the Bush administration and so on. And my secretary is the wife of a cop. She said, this letter is really disturbing. And I picked it up and read it. Well, it turns out that was not the active letter, but it looked like it might have been. A day later, she came in and she said, I've got this kind of scabrous thing on my, on my upper breast. And I said, what's that all about? And her friends had gone to the bathroom and they said, oh, this doesn't look good. We couldn't find anybody in New York who had ever seen an anthrax attack. We sent her to the very, very best dermatologist. He called me and he said, I can't rule this out, Tom. I said, what do we do? He said, try to get the agencies to make a decision for you. So I actually got in touch with a very secret facility in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And they said, can't tell anybody, but get us a sample. Fort Detrick said, we don't think it is anthrax. So I was very relieved. So I think we're home free. And then we sent it down to the CDC. Friday morning, I get a call and we were not home free. And I had to call my secretary, who was hysterical, understandably. She had an 18-month-old child at that point. There was a movie scene at 30 Rock. We're on the 50th floor. We've got the head of the FBI, the police commissioner, Rudy Giuliani, the landlord for 30 Rock, NBC's people, and it's jump ball. Nobody knows what to do or how to do it. I had to go down to the newsroom and say, everybody has to make their own decision. We think... It's confined to these two people, but if you want to go home or go to your doctor, please do that right now. And it turns out an intern in the outer office had a worse case because she'd opened the original letter, and it had spilled out on her legs. They sent out a hazmat crew. They went through our trash, but they didn't have their, all their hazmat stuff, and some of them got anthrax attacks as well. It was a very, very tricky, difficult, difficult time. So let's make one more jump. I'm a pilot. I was giving you a ride once in this small turboprop I had back from Montana. And you were in the back of the plane working on this book. And you had this idea for a book to talk about your dad's generation. And you were laying out the thoughts about it. Of course, it was the greatest generation. What was the thesis of that? And how did it come to you? Well, I was born in 1940, so I'm an old dude. And my first memories of life were of World War II. We lived on an army base. Everybody was going to war, coming home from war. After the war, we went to work on a, a big government project, building dams in the Middle West. And there was a town called Pickstown, Fort Randall. And workers came from all over America for these very good jobs. I'll bet 90% of the guys were veterans. And we never heard a war story. Never, ever heard a war story. That was the culture that we were living in. The 40th anniversary of D-Day. I went to Normandy, and the first day that I was there, I walked on the beach with two members of the Big Red One, the First Division, landed in the first wave. Two smallish guys from Pennsylvania, and it turns out they'd been in the same landing craft, didn't realize that until we put them together. And I said, what do you remember? They looked at each other, and they said, oh, we remember the same thing. The landing ramp went down, and as soon as it went down, our lieutenant and our sergeant were shot through the head. We had no leadership. We were on our own. We are 18 years old. And we were just terrified. And there was a colonel running down the beach like he was out for a morning jog. And he was leaning over groups like us and saying the same thing. Two kinds of people on the beach, men. The dead and those about to be dead. Keep going right now. Get going. He saved a lot of lives that day. And they both had the same reaction. They said, we're going to fight this war one day at a time. We're going to stay alive one day at a time. By noon, I was a puddle. At the end of that day, I thought, my life has changed. I just couldn't get enough of these stories. And I came back here and I started gathering more and more and more of them. So you wrote this book. It redefined you and you became the greatest generation guy. You know, I must say it was very gratifying. Random House thought they had a big hit. They didn't know for sure. They ended up printing 
editions in Japan, Indonesia, and everywhere they could get a printing press. An Irish woman from Boston wrote to me and said, I'm Irish. We're big patriots. We have a big family. I now have 12 copies of your book. Will you tell my, God bless you, my right? nephews to stop sending me the book? It was not about me. It was about them. I was a beneficiary of it, obviously, because people saw me in a different way. And I still hear about it because generations have come along and didn't know about that. And they've heard about their grandfather being in the war. They get the book and they come to me and say, oh, my God, I had no idea. So it was the single most important professional thing I've ever done. So you've done a lot of great professional things. You're the only person to ever host the Today Show, Nightly News, and Briefly Meet the Press. You've won seven Emmys, three Peabody's. You've been inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. In 2014, you even received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. Life must have really changed when you gave up the anchor seat on Nightly News in 2004. What led to that decision? I mean, you're sitting on the pinnacle of power at that moment. These are the days the broadcast TV networks had huge audiences, big ratings. There were three of you, and you decide to step down. Well, because I didn't want to be hostage to someone else's agenda. As you know, I love hunting and fishing and being outdoors and going places when there's not a rating period on. I wanted to be able to do that. The summer before 9-11, I had decided that I would wind it down then. But when 9-11 happened, I knew I had to stay through the next election, which I did. I'd been on television at that point for 35 years. I didn't need one more time with makeup on, frankly. So I decided I wanted to do something else. So you were always thought of among the three anchors and probably in journalism. You were always the champion of real America, that part of America that the media elites fly over. Has anyone taken your place? No. This is an extraordinarily complex, wonderful place. And there are great stories to be told. Now we have 24-7 cable news, but it's from a narrow base, frankly. I know that out there, the people resent that. What about us? I think they're right. It ought not just to be a picture from 20,000 feet. That's how I feel about it. So let's move on to a book, A Lucky Life Interrupted, The Memoir of Hope. You wrote it in 2015 about your battle with cancer. Since I've known you, you were always that physical, healthy, outdoorsy kind of guy. You were that Midwestern specimen of health. It hit you like a ton of bricks. Tell me about it. The early part of that year, I went to South Africa to cover Mandela's funeral, and I had a backache. And I'd had backaches before because I'd climb mountains, and as you say, you know, I was out fishing and doing things. I didn't think much. I thought I'm going to get past this. But then I began to fall. My primary care doctor there, who was an internist, was a really smart guy, and he said, shouldn't go on this long. So he drew some blood, and then he called in the oncologist, and they sat me down, and they said, you have a malignancy. It's called multiple myeloma. You know people who died from this. Geraldine Farrow died from it. Frank Reynolds, the ABC anchorman, died from it. We don't think you're in peril of dying. He said, we've got about a five-year life term. How do you get it? Well, we don't know. Is there a cure? No, not yet. How is it going to affect my life? Well, that's kind of up to you, but it's going to change your life. There's no question about that. So, I mean, there are other people on this journey that you've been on. What advice do you have for them? My advice is uh, live every day and try to park it as much as you can. One of the things I've learned about having cancer is the extraordinary work that is being done in these fields and the dedication of people. And let me just say something else. And that is we couldn't have a hospital system in America without immigrants working for us. And they're working at the highest levels and at the lowest levels of the American healthcare system. And they come from South America, they come from Africa, they come from Asia. Is the untold story of the American healthcare system are these immigrants. That Sloan Kettering, a woman from Argentina, when I raised that with her, she said, yeah, we're not a melting pot, we're a puree. <laughs> <laughs> so as we record this, you're 79, approaching 80. This podcast is about insights. Probably you have some of the most unusual insights and certainly have had some of the best vantage points. Give us a little insight as we wrap up here on, let's start with the TV networks. I'm not one of those who said we ought to go back to the old days. I love the idea that you get everything you want on all these different instruments. The fact that we can get somebody in a nanosecond to, for example, New Zealand on a recent shooting or get pictures out of the uh, border down in Mexico. And we have a whole new generation of journalists coming along. And I'm thrilled with who they are. 
it's opened up to women now in a way that it didn't in the past. So I'm very encouraged by that. But the big, big concern that I have is social media. I don't know how we ever get our arms around that. You can be a guy who never got a date for the prom sitting in your underwear in Chicago, and you can raise holy hell by not ever telling the truth, by making stuff up, and it goes bang across the world. And it's very, very persuasive and skillfully done. It's a form of a kind of induced genocide because it's pitting one group against another constantly. You almost never see anything on social media anymore in which here's an idea for working together. You don't hear that. What you hear is, I'm against it, and here's why. I remember in the early days of Trump, I thought he gave an important speech in the Middle East in which he went to the Middle Eastern leaders and he said, if they come and they want to start jihad in your country, throw them out. You remember that speech? Throw them out. And I said, I've been waiting to hear something. Like I got killed by people who read my Twitter. I don't go on Twitter anymore as a result of that. It's just too easy to misinterpret it. So let's go to, in the news today, you've seen the cycles, capitalism and socialism. Well, I think that the Democrats got a problem. I think the problem for the Democrats is going to be, are they going to be driven by the hard left, by the socialism crowd, or are they going to go back to their working class roots? In my bias, if they don't go back to their working class roots, they're going to lose. There's, in my judgment, too much attention paid to Bernie Sanders and everybody else. But then you go out and talk to people who own a hardware store in Minnesota or a guy who worked on the line in one of the manufacturing plants. They're not interested in that. They believe in the American dream. It doesn't mean that we can't improve things. I think we do have to do something about health care, about how we pay for it and who has access to it. But I did think Nancy Pelosi said the right things. I'm not interested in impeachment. It's a waste of our time. We've got to move on with this country. That was a very smart thing for her to say, because that will play to the middle class. It's going to be a knife fight. There's no question about it. The other concern that I have is that most of these candidates who are quite a ways to the left, I've yet to hear from them about foreign policy. You know, we're going through a huge transition. The European alliances are broken. They're shattered at this point. Britain doesn't know where it's going to go. The uh, Poles and the Austrians have gone hard right. I thought Obama did not handle Russia very well, and as a result, Russia is more powerful than it deserves to be in Europe. And then the big issue is not having a meeting with Kim Jong-un. It's about what are we going to do about China? How are we going to manage China going forward? China has enormous problems. They've got 100 million people moving to the cities. They want cars and they want utilities. China also wants turf. And they're determined to get a beltway to the Middle East from China. They're coming out of the South China Sea, going right to the Middle East so they can plug in to the oil that's there. I don't think we have much of a policy about it. I know that the military people worry about it a lot. Let's end on the real future. What do you think about space exploration? You watched the entire space program unfold. You were covering much of it. What do you think we're doing? I like the unmanned space stuff. I thought that what uh, Caltech did on Mars was astonishing. We learned so much from setting up an unmanned space thing, and you don't risk life, and it's a lot less expensive. I know there's a romance about going into space, but I think the idea that we're going to go and colonize Mars is not going to happen. I know you're a young man, but it won't happen in your lifetime either, Bob. <laughs> Maybe my grandchildren. <laughs> so we end this always, because it's math and magic, talking about the greatest mathematician you know or the greatest magician. In your case, tell us about the greatest journalist you know. Who's the most analytical? Who's the best storyteller? I've always had this connection to the Pritt crowd. And John Meacham is a classic example of how, what a gift he is for this country. Evan Thomas is another one. And then when it comes to people on television, Tim was in a class of his own. Nobody would deny that. It's Tim Russert. Yeah, Tim Russert. We've always been able to find the right people at the right time. The Today Show is now being run by two women. They're really bright and are enormously successful. Tom, thanks. My pleasure, Bob, always. That's fun. There are three lessons I take away from Tom. One, make the big ask. Sometimes you'll actually get it, like Tom getting to the top of Notre Dame. Two, don't overlook the middle. It's easy to focus on extremes, but Tom built his career and his life on remembering the middle. Three, say yes to opportunities. He went to Atlanta covering those key moments in the civil rights movement. He got on the bus to cover a small Republican gubernatorial candidate in California, turned out to be Ronald Reagan and even his experience with the Berlin Wall. Tom has his own podcast. Now hear this. Be sure to give it a listen as well. 
I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.